0: This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink.
1: Terry Waite, CBE, he is a hostage survivor. We've got to go all the way back to 1987, Chris. Yeah, for that this was incident when
2: he was seized. So we'll, we'll contextualise this a little bit more. We'll, we'll find out in just a moment how Terry actually got into this because by his own admission, he actually kind of fell into hostage negotiating because he wasn't one. He wasn't qualified for this, that story upcoming. But the story that we're focusing in on is Terry Waite's remarkable tale of survival. He was kept captive for five years over in beirut led He had actually played a huge role in freeing some hostages on a first visit over to Lebanon. That was in 1986. He then went back on a return mission to continue his negotiations with the hostage takers and it it would lead to actually him being taken. More on that in just a few moments. But for those of you just joining us and thinking, I don't know, I've got no clue who Terry Waite is, I appreciate many of you will have. It was a famous story in the late 80s. Let's give you a little bit of background on Terry himself and How he became a de facto "quote unquote" hostage negotiator.
3: Well, I suppose I better go back over the years because I was never, never expected to be a negotiator for hostages. I was thrown into it when I was living and working in Uganda as a comparatively young man, and it was at the time of the Amin coup. And many of my colleagues were thrown into jail. Many were murdered. Uh, and it was the first time in my life, you know, that I'd seen people actually killed before my eyes. And um, I negotiated with the men. I met the men on a couple of occasions, and was able to get some people out, but not many, because many did die in the most terrible ways in those camps. Then I came back to the UK and was recruited to be an advisor to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now I'm not a, I'm not a clergyman. Uh, I'm a layman. But he wanted someone on his staff who would be knowledgeable about world affairs and who would uh, travel with him and make sure that he had the right contacts, you know, the diplomatic and ecclesiastical exchanges. And so that was what I was appointed to do. But I was thrown into hostage work because church people were uh, taken hostage in Iran. And I went out to Iran and negotiated with the Revolutionary Guards. And then, as you've mentioned already, with Gaddafi in Libya, um, negotiating uh, there also. And one was able to get people out by really trying to understand why people were being taken and what was the real reason. I've never been one to pay ransom for hostages. I've always done it through really appealing to the better nature of people. And, you know, everybody has, has a better side to them, and sometimes... Although I don't agree with hostage taking for one moment, I can see sometimes why people do it. So anyway, I unravel those problems. But then, if you do a dangerous job like that, things can always go wrong. And they went wrong for me, trust was broken in Beirut, and um, I was taken hostage. And spent, uh, well, 1,763 days, which is almost five years, in very strict solitary confinement.
2: Yeah! Wow. He negotiated Colonel Gaddafi over in Libya, Idi Amin over in Uganda where he lived and worked and he almost fell into it. And it wasn't until he came back to the UK that someone reached out to him on behalf of the Archbishop of Canterbury to say, we've heard of your story over in Uganda. You've faced down Idi Amin in a number of occasions. You've helped release hostages. He wants to bring you on as almost a a, a council in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. You can help us to free hostages from all around the world. And in 1986, he gets the call that he needs to head to Lebanon. Why?
3: Well, all these situations, I've never sort of jumped up and said, right, let me go there. I've gone because families uh, and families who are desperate uh, have appealed to me and said, look, we're not getting information. We don't seem to be getting anywhere. Can you do something? Now in Beirut, it was a time of great hostage taking. Uh, there were people taken from all sections of society, Terry Anderson, who was a journalist, AP journalist, um, bureau chief, um, Tom Sutherland, who was at the university, John McCarthy, who was a journalist on his first trip overseas. Now, all their families, Bran Keenan, too, who was um, from Ireland, English teacher. And so there were a number of people who'd, who'd gone. I've just mentioned a few of them. Mm. And all their families came to me and said, look, will you help? And uh, at first I said I didn't want to be involved because I knew it would be a long, long haul. And I just was doing another job. I mean, I had the job to do at Lambeth. But eventually I I agreed. Now, one of the things I've always stood by is this, that if you agree to help a family who are in trouble like that, you stick with it until the going gets difficult for um, the people, for their hostage Uh, If it gets difficult for yourself, you try and stick with it as long as possible. But you should leave, of course, if you're being a danger to the hostage themselves. And uh, so I took it up reluctantly, knowing was in for the long haul.
2: In for the long haul is the biggest understatement, I think, that Terry delivers, a man that, that travelled extensively as a special envoy for the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and I guess he's in part explained that there. A lot of families in need, a lot of families who had family members taken hostage, they would reach out to the church. That was where they would go. Can you help extricate our loved one from this perilous situation? So he's gone over there. I said it earlier, he'd gone tonight in 1986, he'd managed to get some people free. He went back back for the second time, and it led to this.
3: First of all, I was able to form a relationship with the captors. I met them in secret. I had conversations with them, and uh, that was things were moving along. A couple of hostages were released, um, both of them clergymen, actually. One was Ben Weir and one was Martin Jenko. Ben Weir was a Presbyterian minister. Martin Jenko was... Um, uh, a, a Roman Catholic priest they were released uh, and uh, came came back home uh, and I continued working but uh, trust was broken, trust was broken because of uh, a long political story which is all recorded in the book, you can read about it if you're interested in the book, Taken on Trust it's there and uh, I went back at a time of great difficulty when I knew trust was at a very low ebb and I felt I had to go back and try and pick up the pieces and try and uh, see if I could redeem the situation. Although I knew that I was exposing myself to very great danger and that the chances are that I would be captured or killed. Now, that's not false bravado. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that there are certain times in life when you know that you have to do something, even though it may be of personal danger to yourself, so you get on with it. Well, I went back and I found myself, instead of, uh, I was uh, told that I could go and see the hostages uh, who were ill and one was about to die. And I said, if I come with you, you'll keep me. And they said, no, we won't. And of course, I went and found myself in an underground cell. And that was it for about almost five years in solitary confinement. So it was very really strict isolation and very strict separation from, from the uh, world outside. scary is that? That's
0: got to be one of those things when you're in that kind of profession that you know is a risk and danger almost each and every time you go in to do your job. But that, yeah, I bet you have sort of a wall that divides you from that reality well, mentally, it. right? Uh,
2: as he said, he felt compelled. He felt it was his duty. He was going over there on behalf of families. And he said, despite the fact that time and time again, he knew his life would be in danger. danger, There was something that compelled him to continue to negotiate. He is someone that, uh, as he said a little earlier, talking is the first port of call. Forget arms, forget fighting. It was all about talking. Seeing the point of view of the hostage takers and trying to come to some sort of of resolution but as you've heard there on this occasion opens the door he's in an underground cell and that would be his reality for five years that's just absolutely incredible so what was his new reality like we move the story on now that new reality explain that one for us terry
3: first of all i was kept underground um in a tiled cell where there was a very primitive toilet facilities And um, nothing. I just had had to keep absolute silence. Later on, I was moved to be in uh, an upper building, um, uh, a bombed-out building in the room of an upper building. I was chained to the wall for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day by the hands and the feet. I slept on the floor. There was no natural light if I was in an upper room, as I was most of the time. Metal shutters were put in front of the window, so no natural light came in. I had one visit to the bathroom a day. I had no books or papers for almost uh, four years. I had no companionship. When anyone came in the room, I had to pull a blindfold over my eyes so I didn't see anybody. So it was a situation of extreme isolation. And one had to learn how how to live with that, how to survive. Because when you, uh, I'd read and I'd heard about people who'd been kept for prolonged periods in solitary confinement, And they'd lost their reason. And uh, I wondered if that was an inevitable consequence of being kept in that way. It isn't an inevitable consequence. You can survive that and you can come out the better for it, believe it or not. I believe that, in fact, as far as I was concerned, it was, of course, exceptionally difficult because I was tortured and I did face a mock execution. But having said that, you know, I look back on it and I say, well, that was a very formative time for me, because when you are isolated like that, you become you can become, most people do, intensely introverted, and you look at yourself, and anybody who takes a hard look at themselves will discover that they're a complex mixture of, of light and dark, good and evil, call it what you will. It doesn't really matter. We're, we're, we've got those two sides to our character and anybody who comes across, does an honest appraisal of themselves will discover the dark side. And the danger is that when you discover that, you become over-depressed. And what you have to realize is you're just a normal human being. The whole human race, we're made in the same way. Um, you can't necessarily be proud of everything you've done in your life, but try and find some degree of inner balance and not to allow depression to take over and take this as an opportunity to recognize that there's a real possibility that something creative can come from this experience, something that you didn't expect to happen, because uh, most people have within them gifts and abilities they didn't know they had. And this gives an opportunity, this can give an opportunity for that to develop. In my case, it was a case of of writing. I'd had no pencil and paper for years, but I began to write in my head. My first book was written in my head and put in print when I came out of captivity because then I was able to write it down. And so it, it can be taken. You, you've got also to take one day at a time. You can't afford to uh, begin to think, oh, you know, about the future. You can say, right, today I have life. I can be thankful for that. I have life now. And I hold on to it now and I make it, even though the circumstances are limited, I make it as full as possible now. And that can be done again in solitary confinement.
1: What he's managed to do in in kind of choosing a path, a vocation of such selflessness and then surrendering himself to... You know, a, a kind of introspection that few of us would ever go through. Few of us yeah. ever expose ourselves to. He's actually attained a very rare level of wisdom, whereby most of us are far too scared to even approach or or, or delve into that st- that area of our psyche mm. that would expose, you know, this this very dark kind of inner inner place, which he has gone into through his captivity and the, the things that he went through. But obviously he was doing that job in the first place because he had a calling yeah. that not many people answer.
2: Absolutely that, Rob. And, you know, having gone through that, you're absolutely right. It's given him a unique perspective on things. And, you know, I'm maybe guilty of it. So sometimes if, if these self-help gurus, your Tony Robbins of this world, you think to yourself, that's easy to say that. How do you actually put that into practice? But listening to Terry... And again, this is not a slight against Tony, but listening to Terry, it 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 really does hit home that this is a man who's plummeted the depths. This is a man who's saying there is light and dark, there are bad days, but you you, you realise that focus on the positives. And this is a man who, for 23 hours and 50 minutes, he said so himself. He was he was bound hands and feet every day, chained to a, a radiator, not being able to converse with anyone. Well, he's in solitary confinement. And then, well, the day came, because he's obviously talking to us, so he was eventually released after five years. This was how it was reported by the BBC over in the
1: UK. There is Mr Waite, back home after nearly five years away from Britain. Unaided, walks down the steps of the plane. You can hear the cheers of the crowd drawn up. Well, I must say that is a quite extraordinary picture for a man who's been chained up for 23 hours and 50 minutes of every day for nearly 2,000 days.
2: It was a huge story in the UK at the time. Uh, an international hostage story. This is a man whose perseverance, the the positivity that he showed throughout this uh, episode, it was massive. It was covered, all the major newspapers and all the major news broadcasters back in the UK.
0: A small thing that struck me in that, as he talked about him walking. You would think your muscles would atrophy to the point where you wouldn't really be functionally able yeah. to use them. I mean, that's striking to me as well. <laughs> well,
2: we will get to that point as well because I did ask about the effects that it did have. But I, I wanted to find out from Terry about that day that he saw sunshine once again. How was it that it came to be? And this is what he had to say.
3: Well, the day, very simply, uh, the day came about when I was simply, they came into the cell and they said, you're going home and they threw some clothes in, none of which fit in because I'm <laughs> so tall like yourself. And uh, I was simply blindfolded, take now, put into the boot of a car, which was a familiar way of transporting you, uh, taken to... Um, uh, Syrian uh, taken to Syria actually I was driven to Syria and went into the uh, Syrian intelligence headquarters there and they said to me well what do you want what's the first thing you want and do you know the first thing I wanted it was believe it or not a haircut and <laughs> get my beard trimmed I look like the wild man of Borneo and one of the things one has to do of course in, in isolated situations somehow keep up the you know, dignity and your pride in yourself and so they got a little man in from the street and he came with his uh, leather case gave me a trim on the beard cut my hair and i said right i feel a bit better now ready to face the world and that was it
1: and it's amazing how such a little thing like a haircut yeah. could probably rejuvenate him so much that it would just Re kind of, it would be like thawing out back into society. Yeah. You get a haircut, you look in a mirror, you're, you're all spruced up after five years of just the grimiest, yeah. most despicable habitation to then just get a little trim and a shave and you off you go.
0: Associate it with being a member of civilization. Yes.
2: One of the things he did say, we've already heard from Terry talking about the fact he had no uh, access to paper, pens, to books. After that haircut, he was asked, you can do anything, take me to a bookshop. He went and he said he just stared at the books, he picked books up, he just flicked through books as if to say, wow, I have taken these things so for granted. And actually that led uh, to Terry to recount a specific moment in captivity that has stayed with him all these years.
3: On one occasion when I was in captivity, I was uh, given one visit to the bathroom a day, as you know. And in the bathroom, there was a high window. I was on the third floor of an apartment block, bombed out building. There was a a, a high window covered by a shutter, which was padlocked. One day, the padlock had been left open. So I remember clambering up there and looking down on the street below. And as I looked down, I saw a lady walking along with a bunch of flowers. And it was the first time I'd seen colour in captivity for a long, long time. And I thought, how wonderful. And then that rather trite saying came to mind. You know, the best things in life are free. And speaking to you now, only this afternoon, I just sat in my garden, and it was peaceful, it was quiet, because there's no traffic at the moment, or very little traffic, and the sun is shining, and the birds are singing, and the wind is on my face, and I say, you yeah, the best things in life are free. Let's learn to appreciate them. And
2: there's a message in there, right? I mean, that might sound a little melodramatic, but for, for Teddy it isn't. When you listen to him there, he's... He's absolutely Is that, right. Because he's dead right. talk in today's society about being in the present, living in the present. Social media has allowed us to, to fall into a kind of a world where we're never truly there. With Terry, that isn't the case. You, you get the impression that Terry literally does live in the moment and appreciate everything that he's had. And I asked Terry to take me back there, or to at least transport himself back there to that little room, that dingy room in darkness, bound up. What kind of emotions did he go through in those first few days, first few weeks, first few months before he realised and accepted that this was going to be his new reality?
3: Well, in the first days, of course, uh, you feel, um, first of all, fear, and that's a normal, normal reaction. You're afraid. You also feel anger. Now, I, I, in the first days, I was I was angry. And if you're angry, you have to do something about it. I mean, in my case, uh, I, I had my liberty severely restricted. And so I said, well, I'm not captured completely. <clears throat> so I did what many prisoners do when they're first uh, incarcerated. I went on hunger strike. I didn't eat. I didn't eat for a week. And after a week, they came and they said, Look now, if you don't eat, we're going to make you. And by that time, I got some control over my anger. I'd made my point. I got some control over anger. And I, I later on, I wrote a, I wrote a, well, some years ago now, I wrote a book called Out of the Silence, which is a book of poems and reflections that I, some of which I made in captivity in my head. And there's one about anger, and it's one of the very few I could remember off heart. It goes. Anger is like a consuming fire, seeking all whom it may devour. Do not extinguish the flames totally, but warm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. What I was really saying there was, we're all, we all feel anger. Um, but if we allow anger to get the better of them, ourselves, it will do us more harm than those against whom it's held. So recognize it's a force. Everybody has it. And try and take that force and turn it round so that it becomes a creative force rather than a destructive force and uh, that's what i tried to apply um, in those early years but there's no doubt about it i, I was frustrated i was angry and um, i didn't of course enjoy the experience who would but again you accept the limitations of the experience and you say there are severe limitations but not complete there is still room for movement. And what you have to do is keep your mind alive. Um, the brain, i have often been said to me, the brain is like a muscle. You know, you have to exercise it. And if you don't exercise it, if you don't keep it stimulated, it'll die on you. Just like uh, muscles die on you if you don't take exercise. The brain is the same. And somehow, by using imagination, by writing, by writing poetry, by writing a book, By keeping my mind alive, I kept my brain active. And um, I like to think it's still active now. I'm almost 81 now, 81 next month. Incredible. And still leading an active and busy life. But I think that's partly due to being the fact that I've learned how to keep my brain alive and how to keep an interest in many things, not just in one small area.
2: Just listening to him there, I'm finding it. Powerful stuff again, listening back to it. Um, he's just it's he's just a remarkable, it's what it is. yeah. It's- I
0: feel like a lot of that, what you were saying, the introspection that he does, and yeah. recognizing that there are parts of yourself maybe that you don't like the darker parts, but that if you can, instead of getting you know feeling uncomfortable by them, but you can dive into that, see them, realize that they're there, acknowledge yeah. them, and then manage it in a way that is then not only not harmful, but beneficial to you, how powerful that is.
2: It's a man that was kept captive in solitary confinement four of those five years, but he isn't. He sees the, the best things in life. And I did have to ask him, again, I was prying somewhat a little bit, but does he ever find himself, You know, whether it be at night when he goes to bed, does he ever transport himself back to that small, tiny room where he is chained up to a radiator and he had this to say.
3: I often think about those years, because I'm often asked about them, and therefore I can't avoid yeah, of them. But they don't trouble me. And um, I, I can tell you, um, a couple of years back, I said, the time has come for me to go back to Beirut and meet, as far as possible, the people who were responsible for my captivity. So I went back, and um, some years previously, I'd been there at night with promise of, uh, of safe conduct, and it was broken. I mean, some years later, after captivity, now I went back to meet them. And uh, they said to me, they said, well, (laughs) they're very surprised to see me. (laughs) They said, well, look, um, I said, I'd like to take something creative from this experience, both for you and for me. And they said, well, what can we do? I said, I've just come back from the Lebanese border, and I've seen people who are cold and sick and hungry and refugees, can you at least let me have heating oil for them? And they said, yeah, we'll do it. Now, a very small gesture, a very small gesture. But I do believe very strongly that if there are enough people in countries where there are disputes uh, from, from different sides who will sit down, who will face each other, who will recognize that nobody, no group has full possession of the truth, if they'll do that, We could begin to have uh, more peace and greater stability in the world. One of the good things, and if I can put it like that, um, I think you'll understand what I mean. One of the good things about this great and terrible epidemic that's now a pandemic that's striking the world is it's a great leveler. And if you've got eyes to see, you will recognize, many people will recognize that some of the divisions... The religious divisions, the tribal divisions, the national divisions, the political divisions really are man-made nonsense, man-made nonsense. We are all members of the human race. We need to be in a better relationship with our environment. We need to be in a better relationship with each other. And this virus will teach us, I hope, that we are together and that we are all together in this great uh, uh, endeavour to live life fully and to make this world the beautiful place that it could be.
1: Incredibly prescient that he had those words that could be equally applicable. People were able to see the bigger picture Mm. and not just get so caught up in their own sense of them being feeling like they are under threat, they are under attack. Then there would be a lot more decorum perhaps and there wouldn't be these horrendous scenes that we have to witness Breaking out in cities around the world where, where people are just so wrapped up in their own sense of self-pity. Woe is me. I'm the victim. I'm under attack. They can't quite see the, the, the bigger picture. Well, I think for some again it'd be remiss of me to say I think for some feel passionately
2: about it, but strip it back and and what Terry is saying that you know it's it's a utopian view, but we are one race, it is one world. How great would it be if I had one wish, it'd be for us all to live in harmony and and for him to to say that, you know, through despite the fact that all he's been through, that he still had the compassion to go back there and liaise to converse with the same individuals and entity that took him hostage for five years for the betterment of refugees sitting on the border of Lebanon. It says a lot about the character and the man is what it does. It was an absolute privilege and an honour to speak to Terry Waite. He is someone that he's just a wise man. He's got amazing thoughts about the world and the way that the world should be governed.
0: Thanks for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.